getting the chanting right and even getting quite nervous about it. Uh, essentially, to be able to use the occasion to reflect on the purpose of the summoner training, what it actually precipitates and puts one into. It's the, so we really, it's called a going forth from home into homelessness. And one really gives up a lot of things that normally one supports oneself with. So this is something that takes quite a while. So we often, you know, lead up to this ordination with quite a few years of meditation practice and preset practice and community practice, all of which help one to, to let go and still feel in that letting go. So letting, letting go is done consciously and clearly and in a graduated, measured way. So we begin to sense as we let go of particular things that normally we kind of hold ourselves with, that the very quality of the consciousness that lets go um, is supportive. There's a bit of a paradox there. You know, this consciousness is normally that which arises dependent upon a particular object, such as seeing something or hearing something or tasting something or remembering something. So, you know, ordinary consciousness is one where one actually feels oneself, I am the subject, one who sees this. Um, I'm the person who this is happening to. You know, so one's sense of self arises dependent upon consciousness. We're kind of held within the matrix of sight and sound and touch and so on. And so normally we find um, pleasurable sounds or familiar sounds or sounds that help to, or sights and perceptions and memories and people and events that give us a sense of stability and being the same and holding it together. Things are agreeable and tomorrow's predictable and the future will be like this. Got a fair chance the future will be like this and I feel okay. This is the normal function of consciousness is to establish this. So, it, But there is such a thing called the unsupported consciousness, um, which is a, a consciousness of letting go, which means that the whole inclination is to relinquish these forms of support until we become more into the very quality of just awareness itself. You might say uh, quality of consciousness that is not so much derived in an object, but is, is positioned around recognizing an object is impermanent. This sight is impermanent. This sound is impermanent. This situation changes. This is something you can't rest upon. This is not something to belong to or or even feel resistance to, or, you know, so it's a consciousness that neither resists things um, in order to protect oneself, you know, which, you know so sometimes that, that's what we do, or nor is it a consciousness that holds on to things in order to establish oneself. It's a consciousness whose aim is on, you know, neither resistance nor holding. It's called the consciousness associated with letting go. And so it takes as its support the very quality of that faith, that mindfulness, that wisdom that is able to relinquish. Because as we cultivate this in tiny ways over a period of time until our system becomes used to that, it's rather like learning how to swim or learning how to use a parachute. You can jump and against 
seemingly what your senses say, you find, hey, you're floating, you're okay, you don't hit the ground, there is something that supports you. So this, you know, it's very difficult to really, you know, you just have to do it, find out. But it has to be done with a strong degree of mindfulness, and so that the very quality of focus, attention, presence, faith, mindfulness, all of these enlightenment factors acts as a kind of invisible support, you might say, or, or a traceless support. So it's the very presence of one's one's own you know, purity, one's own cultivation just holds you, holds, or holds something, you know, holds itself really. So, you know, and this is considered to be the highest aim. Um, now, these are, these are, it's kind of experience, experience of, of letting go is something we, we cultivate, first of all, in terms of letting go of the power of impulse, you know, volitional tendencies are get it, get rid of it, have it, grab it, deal with it, fix it, stop it. So, oh, this is to do with keeping precepts, whereby the harmful impulses or the uh, acquisitive impulses or the intoxicating impulses, that which wants to drive us to just annihilate ourselves or blot out or indulge or kill something or grab something because we want it, is, is, is checked. So you get that sense that something rises up and you check that, and you're doing this not in just a, some kind of moralizing way of blaming yourself for feeling those, having those impulses, but just in order to experience an impulse as a phenomenon, not as a personal um, attribute. It's not, I'm such a nasty person, or such a corrupt person, but just, oh, this is what greed or aversion feels like. It happens like this, this kind of wish to get or wish to annihilate or wish to blot out oneself or other things. And these are things that all human beings have, these impulses. You might say all sentient creatures have these impulses. Uh, This is what, in a way, we take as one of our ways of supporting ourselves, is the ability to annihilate things I don't like, bother me, get hold of something I want and have, get all I can of it. you know, this is pretty primary stuff. So whenever we check that with mindfulness so that you don't just fill up, you know, stop and then fill up your mind with a sense of guilt or shame or give yourself a lecture on how naughty you are or how pure you are, you just stop, check, and you feel this kind of momentary space opens up. Sense of... And then perhaps, you know, your mind picks something else up. These momentary spaces open up where before there was a, an impulse. So it's just something that you do in quite a, an objective way, just dealing with phenomena, something in a phenomenal way. What happens when the phenomenon ceases, when a powerful charge or impulse is checked and stops? It's kind of momentary, hmm, and then, you know, something else comes along. So, in order to really see this, we, we develop mindfulness in order to focus on that, those little moments when an impulse stops or is checked. And we, in, you know, develop that by cultivating sense restraint, which is, it takes it a little further than just, uh, moral training, but more like 
something on a subtler level of behavior, which is brought around through recognizing just uh, how restless and unhappy and you know uneven one's one's heart and mind can get if you're always following the movement of the senses, the eyes, the ears, and nose, particularly the mind, because it can just keep throwing up objects of desire and aversion a thousand times a minute, seemingly. So if you're following all that, you just get really dazed and punch drunk. So to be able to just check that pull means you can, you know, have something that's kind of, you feel more rested. And it's a struggle for sense restraint because, again, it's something that's so, you know, built into the living system. And human beings are highly developed in the um, sensory outflow. And our minds, in our societies, our minds are encouraged to consider all kinds of interesting new ways. We can have a new feeling, or a feeling arises on a new object that we haven't tried before. Millions always inventing some new form of something that could have a little extra twist or kick or buzz to it. So you say, well, that one, you know, the last one wasn't much good and you bother with that, but this one is really interesting and really fun. You do that and think, well, you did that, and now there's another one. It's really even more fun than that. That was, that was last year's thrill. So you just kind of keep going on like that because they've all got slightly different um, colours to them until you begin to recognise basically it's all the same. It's the same system, in essence. You know, object of desire, momentary glow of, of fulfilment, and then but, and then do it again for a few times until you get bored with it, and then you know, turn the dial and get another one. You know, and that's the that's that's the thing. So you get tired of that. Just how how it sort of drains and leaches out presence of mind because your your own presence gets lost on all these out all these outward objects. You feel really better to just sort of you know stay within your own presence. And it's an important thing to have be reminded of. And it's something you don't see very much in the sense grabbing um, cultures is that your own presence is the only thing you can ever really have. It's the only thing you ever really want. It's the only other thing you can ever really feel fulfilled by. And what the propaganda says is, you know, your presence is partly glued to a motorbike, or your presence is partly stuck in a bottle of perfume, or your presence is actually comes at, at ten quid an ounce. <laughs> Whatever you're going, going for, and that will, you know, it'll make you a bit more richer or fuller or more whole than you were before, <coughs> and and so on. You know. So, because of the lack of cultivation of, of real awareness and clarity, a person finds themselves confused by all this stuff, and we do find that seeking our fulfilment, our wholeness, in all kinds of things that can actually that really provide it. Some of them are okay. You know, it's not that they're necessarily all evil. Some are okay, but they're just not what they're cracked up to be. So one, and then recognizing, yeah, but there is something that is far more fulfilling, and it's called you. You know, in simple terms, or it's one's own chitta, one's own 
heart and mind can be a place which you can cultivate, so it becomes a rather enjoyable place to settle in and feel is interesting, valuable, and um, worthy of being with. So this kind of twofold cultivation, you let go of one thing in tandem with amplifying and tuning into another quality. And the two have to go together. And meditation is very much dealing with the qualities of one's presence and it's mottled the way it's mottled by karma, by habitual drives and attitudes and the way that uh, we're all sensitive in different ways. This is karma. You know, we feel like we're, we're tuned in to different wavelengths and different channels. And there's a huge spectrum of different karmas that occur for people you know, that we've been kind of accustomed to, called inherited karma or vipaka, which is how how we are right now, how we're moulded, how we're formed, how we are right now. You know, what makes me me is the result of things that have happened before. And that very much sets up the paradigm and the possibilities of what could happen in the future. So the sense of who I am, who I sense myself as being, also gives me some kind of suggestion of what I what I could expect out of life. So if you've always been treated like an idiot, then the chances are that you probably feel you can never be much more than an idiot. <laughs> you know, if you, because in a way you've grown to regard yourself in that way. Or if you've been treated as someone who always can always have whatever they want, then, then one tends to approach life from that way. And karma is, we have many, we haven't just got one karma, we've got many, many strands of karma. So part of us probably thinks we're an idiot, part of us probably thinks we should get whatever we want, part of us thinks we should do right, part of us thinks we're incapable, part of us thinks or feels all kinds of different things. And we're, as we meditate, we begin to witness these different strands, these karmic patterns as they occur. And the skill of mindfulness is to be able to stay in a powerful, evocative presence of karma without getting entranced by it. So you can feel the feeling, sense the perceptions, the thoughts, the moods, the attitudes, the assumptions, the meanness of it, as just, oh, that's that sense of meanness. And it's a phenomenon rather than actually a subject. You know, here's, here's, my, here's the image of myself. And this may come up in particular situations where you suddenly feel, oh, you're a fool. Now you look like a fool. There's that image, that sense of me as a fool. It's like that. Then there's a sense of me as a as a really fine person. It's like that. Or a sense of me being uh, whatever you know, responsible or irresponsible, noticed or not noticed or whatever. But actually, these things are quite tangible. They manifest. And they probably don't last for very long. You know, so, so we can have this sense of feeling really uh, you know, silly or foolish. And then we can find ourselves in another situation where we feel really quite free and open and okay. These things kind of come and go. Sometimes we get locked in one that we haven't really been able to 
to be spacious about or be mindful of. So when we can develop mindfulness, because this isn't just purely a matter of will, power, it's a matter of, of practice and maturation, to not get phased by these self-impressions that come up, either impressions of oneself or impressions of other people. And these, recognizing these are the, this is the way that the supported consciousness, what we call the, the samsaric consciousness, works. It's always trying to etch in a description of yourself as something solid, real, permanent. Yeah. And other people as solid, real, permanent, even if they're permanently horrible. So, you know, that, that gives you somewhere to stand, doesn't it? Now I know this person I don't talk to. He's like this, he's useless, da 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 da, you know, and so, so I can steer around that. This is how we create karma. It gives us a direction in life. Or I am no good at this, and never will be any good at this, and actually am useless at this, so I completely avoid this. So that's how we create karma. You know, I can't do this, I can't ever do that, I am actually incapable of doing this, therefore I avoid it. And so we, we create karma. We, that directs us, doesn't it, when we do that. This is the whole struggle, sangsaric consciousness, which is trying to always trying to mold out of these car, out of this karmic potential. He's like putty or plasticine. He's um, trying to mold into concrete these these potencies, these tendencies. And in a way, there's also a thirst to be that. I want to know who I am. I want to be definite. I want to be definitely good and wise and enlightened and bright and on top of it and loved and accepted and so on. That's, yeah. Maybe that's what, isn't that what we could, maybe this is what practice is about, finally getting to be accepted and fearless and loved and trusted and swinging in the right place at the right time, everything's great and so forth. Maybe that's what it could be like. Maybe. <laughs> but the big but you know, is that any perception of oneself, you know, it comes from the supported, has to be supported by something. What it's supported by changes. So, I can't be, you know, if, if what I'm supported by changes, then I can't be changeless, can I? I end up having to keep recognizing, you know, oh, that thing that I prop myself up with has disappeared. You know, the thing that I'm good at, I can't do right now. Therefore, I feel sort of useless or feeble. Uh, the people who I feel really in harmony with, he or she's not there right now, so I feel slightly awkward and embarrassed or whatever. I don't have to sense that. I don't like those senses of feeling awkward or not very useful, not liked or whatever. I don't like that. So then there's a resistance comes up. So this takes really takes this graduated process because the only way that you can really stand free of this is through the maturation 
of the letting go consciousness, which is not not just an act of will, but it has to be this indefinable, you know, bodhi factor, the factor, the enlightenment factor that is traceless in a way, but supports the heart. So one rests in that unsupported heart, which has got a very paradoxically supportive quality, but doesn't support the sense of self. It supports openness. It supports fearlessness. It supports steadiness. It supports not holding on. It supports compassion. But it doesn't support any image of oneself. Because if you recognize it, things like compassion and fearlessness are not, you can't, they're always relational, aren't they? You can't be, you know, they're about, they're about a whole sphere of being. They're not, they're not kind of personal possessions, but they're ways of, of being in, in, a, in, in a context, in a situation. I'm fearless in this situation, or I'm compassionate in this situation. I don't walk around with a kind of being fearless without something that can, you know, that can be related to. It's a nice idea, isn't it? Where you can read a book about compassion. Oh, compassion is great. I like to be compassionate. But actually, compassion itself is, is something that exists in a context where the suffering and helplessness and vulnerability and sentient beings, it's a kind of field experience rather than a personal possession. So these, you know, the, the, the deliverance of the mind is not a personal thing. It's a whole, we might say it's a sphere an enlightenment sphere, whereby you know, there's a sense of inner context. So this is why you know sang- Sangha life is very much contextual. You're always in something, but you have to have possibilities for fear, or aversion, or greed you know, coming up. And Sangha life is something that the Buddha both inherited and developed. He never really moved away from that, that norm. In fact, he seemed to fine-tune it to being, from being something that's fairly loosely formed, you know, just wandering summoners, moving around whether they wanted, and at different times and doing whatever practice they felt like, then to being something whereby they had to stick together with each other, <laughs> at least for periods of time, and come together. And also operate according to particular norms. You couldn't just kind of wear any old loincloth you wanted. It's got to be a particular size and shape. So this means you, you're actually in some relational norm, field of relational norms. And that means other people, doesn't it? And it means, you know, differences of opinion about these things. And differences of feeling about what I feel about the colour brown. Or wearing a skirt. Or shaving once a month. Or not eating in the evening, you know, which doesn't quite suit me. Why can't I eat in the evening and not in the morning? You know, that suits me better. So we have to, in a way, be in a context whereby our own sort of individuality, our own individual calm is really kind of nudged and brushed and challenged. And so, so it's that kind of sense, rather than being something that supports, you know, being a comfortable place. It's something that sort of tends to rattle me and push me and jog up against me. And so one gets a sense of losing one's ground 
It's like tying your right hand behind your back and having to operate with your left hand, or running a three-legged race, or egg and spoon race. You know, a three-legged egg and spoon race with one arm tied behind your back, being told to to stay serene while you're doing it. <laughs> and sangha life is is also one where one is in contact with other human beings. Uh, and certainly in this day and age, that is, that is very, probably more the case than in the time of the Buddha. We actually, you know, live in these monasteries. It's sort of stuck with each other day in, day out. You know, in the time of the Buddha, he, he thought it was a really, you know, praiseworthy thing to do, be able to live together for three months of the year. He said, oh, well done, you managed to live together three, three whole months, you know. Four of you managed to live for three whole months of the year. Well done. This is a cause of celebration. And we're stuck with each other for like, <laughs> like 11 months or something like that. <laughs> so, you know, there's a sense of always having something jostle you because people's moods are going up and down, people's karma's coming up. That means there's always some sense of not quite getting it right with this person or feeling threatened by that person or disrespected by this or having a really nice time with this one, but then he goes somewhere else, you know, to another monastery or something like that. So you, you always, in a sense, of just things are falling apart around you, and you're wobbling along, the support goes, and then this thing you didn't quite like happens, and then something really nice happens, and, and oh, that's great, but then nobody else really likes it. So you think, what's the matter with everybody? You know, what if it was so, so kind of boring and lifeless, you know? Then it then it clings, and then so you get these kind of sorts of dissonances, and it, it it very much pulls the ground away. And it, you know, if one isn't fully attuned to that, as this is not really something going wrong, although from a self point of view, from an ego point of view, it's it's drastically going wrong. But from an enlightened point of view, this is very much in line with the process. Now, but the encouragement is, can we stay with that sense of groundlessness and mindful, compassionate, attuned to that? Yeah. So we're, if you like, bringing our presence into the unsupported state. The state of letting go, the state of impermanence, the state of anatta, or the characteristics of anatta. And certainly, it must always be said, there's, there's a measure to this, just because a system can't take that much in one go, you know, just going to spasms of despair or rage or fear or desolation. So you've got to kind of measure it with, with factors that do give one some support, like, you know, friendship and kindness and security and good health and so forth. These are all you know, if you like, food for the journey. And yet the journey is towards groundlessness. It's important to recognize this because certainly from an outside point of view, it could look quite secure in a way, in a nice little monastery, pretty little place, nice people, no taxes to pay, uh, nasty neighbors, so forth, all chums with same same aspirations. 
you know. Uh, nobody's getting drunk, swearing, fighting. It must be just really, really lovey-dovey. All, all these people of similar inclination all happily swinging along together. And, um, you know, I think to, so that there is that aspect to the life. And hopefully we can always find that quality of, you know, we have things in common. We, are, we do remember our harmlessness, our intention to awaken, our intention not to hurt, and to be kind and loving to each other. And that's certainly part of it. And yet, and yet, you know, as long as one has karma, it's rather like sharing a, a boat, a rowboat, or on, a, on a choppy sea with 20 other passengers on it. As the boat swings around, sooner or later you're bound to stick your elbow in somebody's eye tread in somebody's foot or somebody's going to fall over the bo- overboard or get shoved out. It's more or less just through the kind of jostling of, of these all these impermanent waves and patterns internally and externally. Certainly in a, um, at least Ajahn Chah's approach as I experienced it and I've heard many tales of it is it's pretty much a deep end approach of kind of tipping people into these uncertainties or these kind of groundless states you know where you never quite know what's going on or you know things things keep changing or unreliable um, so you often get you know people to to you know, we ask, told all we're going to leave tomorrow. You get ready to leave and then nothing happens. And suddenly two days later, they say, well, hurry up, we're going. Bus is leaving in ten minutes' time. So you rush like crazy to get all your stuff together. Scramble down there and wait for four hours. Bus doesn't turn up. And they say, oh, well, it's, imper- it's uncertain like everything else. So, you know, you're kind of kept in that state. Uh, you know, this is quite, this would be considered sort of fair play. Um, and all part of the practice, as it were. Or putting people in uncomfortable situations, such as having to give talks to, you know, hundred or so people, maybe in a language you don't really know very well, so you can feel very threatened uh, by that. And these things bring up primary qualities of fear or doubt. And in a way, doubt and fear are, are closely related. Fear, in a way, is, is the is the nitty-gritty of doubt. Doubt is the sense of uncertainty. And when uncertainty, when a Nietzsche impermanence, which is another way of expressing uncertainty, you know, when it's got the quality of fear in it, it causes anxiety, which is the, the, the attempt to try to be secure, the attempt to try to have one's options covered, the attempt to make things okay and be, feel guaranteed. That's just called anxiety. When uncertainty is allowed, it leads to the quality of the un- unsupported consciousness and sense of buoyancy. You know, there's presence, there's the present moment. Don't need the future, don't need to know I'm here in the present. So, quite a fundamental aspect of, of that particular training would be kind of present these possibilities where your mind could go either way into the state of 
fear or nervousness or anxiety, or it could go into the sense of just being present and letting go. And this is what found, um, also Ajahn Sumato, who spent 10 years with Lumpur Cha, and often used to teach in this way and often present in the same kind of deep end approach, not just verbal teachings, but actually situations where you, you get, you know, tossed out of your little cubby hole. Uh, so the, I spent 14 years uh, living with Ajahn Sumato and so I got quite used to this sort of experience <laughs> one time, so things like one time I was a, used to go to the Buddhist society every Monday and I was, so I'd go along with him just to as a junior monk, you kind of attend your teacher, so I carry his bowl, his, his, his bag and his sitting cloth and sit there and do whatever, you know. So this is quite nice, go along with the teacher, sit there, and the teacher gives a talk, you sit there kind of nice and cosy, and he answers questions, you sit there feeling happy, and people look pleased, it's an inspiring occasion, you can get in the bus and go home again, it's very nice, you know. So, and he was doing this series of talks, we were going through the Parita chanting, he was doing talks on Parita chanting, they went down there one evening. We'd done the Mangala Sutra, talked about that. And he was doing, the next one was the Enlightenment Factor Sutta, the Bojanga Parita. So we got there to Buddhist society, went to the hall, sat down, sat and meditated for a while, and rang the bell. He looked at me and said, talk about the, parita, the Bojanga Parita. Give a talk. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, I did all right because I had this kind of treatment before. I was had to. I did the first talk when I was only ordained six weeks, <laughs> and in, in Thailand, and I had to go from Nakhon Sawan, which is central Thailand, up to Chiang Mai. I didn't speak Thai, so they stuck me on a bus. Didn't know where I was going. Couldn't speak language. A little bag of rice in my hand to eat on the bus. Got off the end of the bus. These Thai people picked me up, who I couldn't talk to. Took me to this monastery. And, you know, so the whole thing was just this, I don't know what's going on, I don't know where I'm going, don't know what's going on, don't know what to say, uh, and don't know what, and all that. And then just sort of give a talk. So you get used to dealing with this sort of, well, I don't know, you know, state panic. Um, <laughs> so, so I just made it, did a few of those on me, and I was pretty weatherproof on that one. I really made a complete idiot of myself a few, on a few occasions already in Thailand, so I got used, to, I got beyond caring about that. And in fact, one time when I was still quite junior in, in the monastery, well, in the place we were staying, Oakenholt, then I, 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 one time I just, I was only about two or three rains then, I shouldn't really have been doing this, but uh, while he was away, I, I gave, gave little talks in the evening, in the monastery, you know. and everybody hated me very much because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you often get this kind of uh, you know if you if you're somewhere you're setting yourself up, so you've got the resentment 
the rest of the community who we think he is and so forth and droning on because they all form half-baked ideas so so did that for about five days and every day you get these kind of waves of aversion so I got also free from the feeling of, of fear around you know people's aversion and I was with the situation was uh, Ajahn Kurunika was in Agarika when we got invited. I, I was asked to stand in for Sogyal Rinpoche. We had to go to this place to give to give a talk or give a weekend retreat. And Sogyal Rinpoche was ill, and they had to, so they suddenly panicked. They went around, looked around the last moment. Ajahn Sumedha said, "Well, you can go." So I went, and then we got to this retreat, and then the organizer tried to kind of lift me up a bit, saying, "This is a wonderful teacher, and he's got really some great ideas and all that." <laughs> and then he, he asked for a little go around and what people were. Had come for every one of them said, "I come to hear Sogyal Rinpoche." <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested in Sogyal Rinpoche, you know. So you think, oh, this is going to be fun, isn't it? So I just kind of laughed about that. Yeah, you know, here it is. <clears throat> so the sense of the the fear of 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 looking like a fool, the fear of being resented, the fear of um, is, is a very powerful thing for us because as social humans, then part of our setting is I want to find a sense of feeling okay with you. You know, so part of my what we do is well, it's, you know, what can I do or say that will make it feel easy and comfortable with you? And we can get terribly, which sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? But we can get very worried and anxious, and then then guilty. Perhaps I didn't. Perhaps that wasn't okay for you. Perhaps what I said wasn't okay for you. So we get really kind of, you know, the the lack of spaciousness around, well, maybe it wasn't okay, but that's okay with me. I didn't mind. It wasn't the best thing. It was all right. So we can get very tight and fearful about maybe causing some minor quality of offense. All this is stuff you have to work with in in Sangha life and community life community life because you realize well just you know how much of a really fun perception can I be for you all the time how much really wonderful perception can I maintain for everybody continually and when you're living in a group context you know somebody's always going to be slightly miffed or not interested or not resonant and so forth so it really pushes that particular anxiety button you learn to trust, work with your own intentionality, develop sensitivity and do the best you can and you know, dwell in the qualities not one deliberately tries to be irritating <laughs> or annoying but you know, it's not, but realise it probably it is you know, my presence is sometimes but I have to hold that, you know, accept that and, and not make a self out of it not blame you for being irritated or bored. Not blame myself for being, you know, ir- causing irritation or boredom. We're just, here we are, you know. And so that, that then this becomes a kind uh, as long as one's, one gets one's intentions pure and right and is prepared to learn and, and forgive and so forth, it does result in a sense of, of freedom, of an opening of, of a of a kind of spaciousness of heart one isn't cramped. There are different kinds of 
the Buddha talked about five different bases for fear. Fear of death, fear of pain, fear of going insane, fear of loss of livelihood, fear of loss of reputation, fear of pain. Or, and these are things we ask to come to terms with and recognize we're all going to die. Uh, certainly in in the more outback forms of, of forest monasticism, or monasticism is too grand a word for it, forest dwelling, fear of death it was, to a certain extent, is quite a, a reasonable thing because there's all sorts of powerful diseases, malaria, dengue fever and so forth, and people do, if you're out stuck in the backwoods somewhere, you could get something that could wipe you out quite quickly, or a snake bite. That could, could do you in quite quickly. Um, uh, so, you know, this is something, or they always used to, people choose these places in order to work with the sense of imminent death. Um, and I've practiced like that myself, in, you know, in sort of living out in the, in the wilds in Thailand for periods of time with tigers and snakes and things. You can hear these creatures running around, it's certainly it's not just an intellectual doubt that comes up. <laughs> it's really a kind of visceral, gut-gripping thing, you know. Your body actually starts to go rigid and, you know, change its temperature. When you hear the night time in the jungle, these things coming around, different, feel very different. feel very, very much like a meatball on a plate. <laughs> This is always considered to be a really useful thing to do, to contemplate that sense of fear itself as just dependently arisen. It's not self, it's just a thing that happens to a body, happens to a, to a consciousness. And the unsupported consciousness can, can either let go of the fear or let go of attaching selfhood to the fear, just seeing fear as a, uh, at a bodily level, just a primary instinct that runs through the nervous system. It's supposed to be there. And we just kind of sit with that and feel out the quality of that without trying to stop it or mentally proliferate around it. Certainly in those kinds of experiences, one can recognize the fear is always of something that could happen or might happen. It's never of something that is happening. You're never frightened of something that is happening. You may be hurt by it, but you're not fearful of it. So it's always something that isn't quite here yet. You know, the tiger's outside the door. You can be frightened. The tiger's got his claws around your throat. You're not frightened anymore. <laughs> it's, just, it's a different thing altogether. So we recognise that you've got that possibility of just bringing the mind back from the potential <coughs> and the possible, and that into just the immediate presence. We can see that even in the presence of the fearful, there can be, without denying the fearful, there can be the freedom from fear. Is it the moment? You know, bringing the mind back to the moment. It takes a lot because one has to give up all the protective possibilities that the mind comes up with. Run away, chase, do this, do that, or the other. But just to stand in presence. So it was always considered an excellent act, um, way of developing samadhi. Was fear. It just drives your mind into the present moment, right into the pre- moment of time.
sometimes uh, the fear of pain or just the fear of losing one's pleasure. So, when it's first ordained, just the fear of not having something to eat in the evening, wouldn't say it's a terror, but a real sense of this is going to be unpleasant for me, uncomfortable. I feel this griping thing in my belly. I'll get weak. I'll get undernourished. I'll waste away. I won't get my magnesium and so forth. So this <laughs> thing where again one would get really quite distraught and try to compensate for that by eating lots of food at midday to try and get you through the day. But actually it's quite an unskillful way of doing it because the more you stuff in, the more your belly has to experience the contractions out of that. So it takes quite a while, I found, anyway, to just get say, okay, there'll be some hunger, but it'll be all right. So loss of pleasure can be a source of fear or nervousness. What would it be like without my music, without uh, someone to cuddle, without my dog? Uh, Will I go nuts? Will I be able to handle it? And so on, and realize in the present moment, yeah, it's okay. And the sense of fearlessness that arises when those supports for one's pleasure can disappear and you feel okay with that. Then you, you, the sense of, of stability and fearlessness, I can, I can, I'm free from those. I don't have to worry about that. I can go days without eating. It's all right. I'm okay with a bit of hunger. I can handle, you know, some abusive speech or bad vibes or whatever, or my mind going weird. So one of the fears that we may develop in meditation is not so much insanity as going slightly loopy or hyper or into um, kundalini states or, um, you know, getting spaced out. Um, so this is, if you like, another way of looking at the the fear of, in, of, of insanity, the fear of losing one's, one's, one's marble, losing one's stability. And really the you know, measured thing whereby if this sort of instability is there in meditation, then we try to, we're careful about how much we meditate, how deep we meditate, um, supplying ourselves with things that the attention can hold on to, like being able to think or recollect or being present in the body, make this very firm to get grounded, um, to be able to consider and think and measure our energies and our mind states, so that we we do maintain a sense of of um, you know ground in our practice. And if we can't do that, then you know we perhaps we develop more outward forms of recollection until it becomes more possible to to feel stable when the mind goes into some unknown states or some inexplicable states or the heart feels strange or disconnected and we can be present with that. And it seems that in the untangling of karma, the untangling of the past that occurs, it's rather like you know, you've got something that's been very much folded up and twisted up and as it starts to come loose, strange shapes appear in it, strange patterns appear just in the unfolding. Um, you know, so so that we just have to, since these kind of things happen, and if we're able to 
have the mindfulness to not stick to them, they can they can just pass, they can pass away. There's the fear of loss of livelihood, loss of um, one's ability to support oneself, which is obviously um, you know, a big part of being a mendicant and going for alms food. So even nowadays we still do this. We go for alms food in local towns. And with some sense as one goes that there's no reason why people should feed you. You don't ask for anything. You're sort of standing around looking sort of vacant and weird. And so there can be a real kind of sense of, well, maybe you don't get anything today. And people like to do this deliberately to work around that. And one does recognize that that sense of being vulnerable, being precarious, makes you so much more uh, free because you just keep working with the proliferations and the doubts of the mind and you come back to, I'm standing, nobody's harming me, you know, I can breathe in, I can breathe out. And then when you do get receive food, the quality of, of, of joy and gratitude uh, that comes up is so worthwhile that even quite meagre material food gives on tremendous richness of heart. So there's this kind of great compensation that can occur when we go past our, our fear boundaries. The fear of loss of reputation. You know, often not being able to <coughs> look so good. You know being in situations where we're not so so um, accustomed to. This is something that also occurs in monastic life and sometimes in just having taking up responsibilities. So you know, in my training or my lay life, you know, I was you know, a literature student, so you're not really that good at, you know, Fixing things, or you know, and yet certainly as a monk, I've been in charge of the guests, the stores, the work. I've been a work monk, um, kitchen manager, um, all these things, and even helping to survey, supervise the building work. Here, yeah, I haven't got a clue about building work, you know, but just just working it out as I go along, and I find that really quite quite valuable. Um, so, uh, we just seen Venerable Kuslo here. Remember, you know, that several occasions because he's someone who has easy uh, skills with building stuff that and things of that nature. That I'd really enjoy it when he'd come down, and I just try to learn something, just be with him, and feel how you know awkward and cack-handed and, and unknowing I am in certain areas, and just actually live in that in that sense of self and just practice with it. Whereas other things I'm quite used to and I'm okay with. So I find it really good to come out from my my strong points into places that I'm not clear not so good at in order just to to have that unsupported consciousness arise and the faith and the being with one's self image when it's no longer so good. Certainly living with Ajahn Sumato was many occasions for that because he he sometimes he just uh, 
not turn up to something and then I'd be left in charge of it. Realising that he would say, well, Ajahn wouldn't say that. Ajahn doesn't look like that. Ajahn is funnier than you are. Ajahn is warmer than you are. Ajahn is more bubble than you are. You know, who do you think you are? This kind of thing. One time we did it for a year. He just didn't consult or tell you anything. He just didn't turn up. So there I was for a year in, in Amrawaddi. Then he'd turn up now and then, you know, give a talk now and then. But he didn't explain why. Didn't ask me if I was prepared to do it. He just did it. <laughs> and then one time he, he left, uh, left me do the whole winter retreat. Um, and the, the person, the nun who used to organize the winter retreat, she also left. So I wanted to teach the interview and to organize the whole structure of the retreat and teach it. And I was given about a week's notice to get the whole thing together. And you know, mm-hmm. so that, but then it's, it's clear, really, that the whole thing is to work with the sense of comparisons. Um, you know, about trying to be as good as the next person, or try to fulfil other people's expectations, or be like Ajahn Sumato, or any of you, you know, to be like me, or something like that. And all the feelings that can come up around that, you're not as good as, you're not the same as, you're not as funny as, you're not as wise as, you're not as compassionate as, you're not as strong as, or whatever. All those kind of stuff, you know. And the way that, you know, when you're trying to actually just push all that away, or, or protect yourself from it, how you, you create this karma that actually then closes you down. You're desperately trying not to be and desperately trying to be without really knowing, well, actually, who am I? You know, who am I right now? Can I, can I just allow this to be and, you know, let it happen? And somehow, when one can connect to that quality of trust and purity, then Dhamma does present itself. Because we are, none of us, myself included, do not have characteristics. We just connect to energies and faith and trust that this stuff flows through us. We don't possess anything. I haven't got a kind of directory of talks on some hard drive in my noddle. You know, a kind of little abbot's guidebook that they give you when you come here. You know, my abbot's guidebook was 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 a uh, when I was asked, told to become told to or suggested or however you like to put it, come out was, oh, all we have to do is give a few talks. That's the that's the abbot's guidebook. Yeah, great. You know. So <laughs> the rest of it you'll figure out as you go along. So it's 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 deep end stuff, and. Uh, We're not going to do this to Venerable Kasapo tomorrow. We're going to Dasano, make them have it, but probably, probably quite good at it. Because <laughs> 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 in a way, once you, when you, you don't really have that, that, that uh, much sense of, of a reputation to lose, <laughs> it's easier.
Ellie's. Uh, so this is just inclinations and reflections. And so I, I tend to be kind of fairly not terribly demanding on, on shoving people into into these places because I feel that um, you know, something one has to do in a measured way and ideally see the opportunities and move into them yourself. That's that's the best way to do it. But to really to recognise that sense of vertigo or fluster or anxiety or I can't do not as something to to shut down or feel is going wrong, but as a place where you could you can kind of open and develop and you know, not by trying to compensate for it, but really going into it and you know, it doesn't it doesn't kill you, it doesn't bite. And when you begin to find you can swim in that medium and the sense of joy and fearlessness that can come up when you don't have to be supported by some idea of yourself. And this is the aim of the, of the training, holy life. I think many of these themes are important for us all to reflect on in, in, you know, summoners or not, as the quality of, of fear and anxiety uh, tends to, and self-image and self-blame and criticism tends to dog us all. Well, for this few reflection. <coughs> Come, my young, come, my whole, I beg a